You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. A lot of topical issues from the scripture dealing with membership and polity and covenants and confessions, which were all wonderful, but I felt like we were lacking just kind of steady diet of exposition a little bit. And I know we were all kind of hungry for it. So I said, why not a little bit more in addition to Philippians? And so I wanted to do something in the Old Testament, particularly since so much of what we had been doing over the summer was really focused in the New Testament. So I thought just a, a, a shorter minor prophet book would just be a, a good place to just do some Old Testament exposition, and plus, uh, it's unfamiliar to most of us. Most of us really don't spend a lot of time in the Minor Prophets because it's, it's difficult literature to interpret. You have to really dive in deep and, and really dig into the background and understanding, and prophetic literature can just be very difficult for us, in particular, to wrap our minds around. We can, we can follow Paul's you know, four-point outline that he gives in an epistle much better than we can the often rambling and unique genre of prophetic literature. So uh, I thought Zephaniah would be great uh, just because it's brief, but not just because it's brief, but because there's just a lot of wonderful themes in here that I think uh, we'll be encouraged by. So that's kind of how we got to Zephaniah. So the plan is to spend the next four Sunday nights going into this book and diving in a little bit. And on Sunday nights in the future, we'll have other things going on. We'll have some topical series. We'll have some other people teaching. We'll have some presentations of different uh, projects and and things we're praying for in the community. But for the next four weeks, we're going to just really, really kind of dive into Zephaniah. So if you have your Bible open, you can kind of follow along in this uh, by looking at the book. Let's just kind of take a bird's eye view of the book. So today we're going to look at verse one through six, kind of the introduction. And I want to spend a bulk of our time tonight, uh, not only handling these verses, but kind of helping you situate Zephaniah within its historical context. So we're going to do a lot of that tonight. Um, And then next week, we're going to do one seven through two four where we see this idea of the day of the Lord, which really dominates the, the bulk of the, of the work. Um, and so we'll begin to unpack this idea of the day of the Lord, what that means. Uh, third week, we're going to go to chapter 2, verse 5, all the way to chapter 3, verse 8. And this is what's called the oracle against foreign nations. There's usually a section in most prophetic works where there's an extended uh, section where God is prophesying or God is giving a word to Uh, the nations outside of Israel. And so we see that happen here in Zephaniah. And then at the very end of the book, chapter 3, verse 9 through 20, we see restoration and hope, and that will be the fourth fourth week of Zephaniah. It's interesting, Zephaniah really is almost stereotypical in, in terms of kind of being a lot of the major prophetic works like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. It's almost exactly like those, but kind of in micro in terms of its structure. So it's just a good... It's a good way to kind of wet your feet into prophetic literature if you've not really handled it much before, just to kind of see in much smaller parts, here's, here's kind of the different components of prophetic literature. So all that to say, I, I pray that it will be an encouragement to you. But let's really dive into background information. So let's look at verse 1 of the text and kind of really, really understand what's going on here. Um, we see that uh, this is the word of the Lord that came from... To, to Zephaniah. So Zephaniah is the, is the prophet, and we really know very little about Zephaniah. I mean, we really can't give a lot of information about who he is or what he was like. 
Um, anything that we would come up with largely is just conjecture and, and trying to put together clues as best we can. So we don't know a lot definitive. We do know that his name means Yahweh has hidden or protected. Yahweh has hidden or protected. So based off of his name, there's a strong probability that he had pious parents, parents that were devoted to the Lord, to Yahweh, to the God of Israel, um, and, and who seemed to be devoted to following the Lord during the reign of King Manasseh. And we're going to talk about him in just a little bit because uh, he's such an important part of, of Josiah's story and kind of leading up to Josiah. Um, but uh, but it's, it's interesting. We're not sure all what happened during Ma, uh, Manasseh's reign. Um, there's uh, some indication that there might have been some child sacrificing going on during that time, at least some some persecution against the prophets. And so uh, perhaps Zephaniah's name refers to his parents' desire to keep their child protected from some of this more bloodthirsty acts. Um, Manasseh was a, a very evil, wicked king, as we'll see. Um, and we also see, this is one of the things we do see about Zephaniah, is that we see his genealogy given to us in the first verse. Isn't that interesting? Uh, and we see that his genealogy appears to be connected to King Hezekiah in some capacity. If this is, in fact, King Hezekiah, there's some doubt, but it seems to be that, that he's got uh, some connection to Hezekiah. So as we think about Josiah, we, uh, the king uh, at the time of, of Zephaniah's ministry, and, and the passage that we read from 2 Kings earlier tonight, uh, we see that uh, he, Zephaniah might have been a distant cousin of, of King Josiah in some capacity. But again, we really don't know a lot about him. But the historical context is really what's important. So if you're like me, sometimes your, your history of the nation of Israel and Judah gets a little fuzzy at times. And we kind of have to remind ourselves, all right, which king was where and how did all that go together? So let me kind of take a, a running start to kind of show you the kind of two or three generations before this writing, what has been going on. And it's going to help us understand this kind of aggressive judgment that the Lord gives right off the bat here in Zephaniah. So you remember that in 722 BC, the Northern kingdom of Israel was exiled by Assyria in 722 BC. So if you remember uh, the, the kingdom of Israel split into two, a Northern kingdom and a Southern kingdom. Uh, Israel was typically what the northern kingdom goes by. Judah is often what the southern kingdom goes by. Um, and the northern kingdom is actually conquered by Assyria and sent into exile, scattered, dispersed, leaving after Assyria comes in 722 BC, just Judah. Judah's the only one remaining. And even Judah was under threat. So this was when King Hezekiah was around, when Assyria was really pressing on the southern kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah ruled for 29 years. He was king from 715 BC to 657 BC. And you can read his story in 2 Kings 18 through 20, if you want to go back and read his account. Um, but there's uh, particularly a crisis event that occurs, uh, often called the Sennacherib crisis, where Sennacherib from Assyria is literally standing outside the gates of Judah, and God intervenes in a miraculous way and delivers his people. And, and so Hezekiah was a good and godly king um, that tried to bring the people back into worship of the Lord, but his son was not that way. His son was uh, described as, as one of the most wicked kings that Israel had ever had, um, that Judah had ever had. So Manasseh had a long reign. He reigned for about 55 years from 687 to 642 BC, and he's described 
as a wicked king. In fact, if you have your Bible, look over to 2 Kings real quick, and we'll just glean his story rather briefly. Um, 2 Kings 21. Um, Again, for time's sake, I won't read the whole chapter, but let me just read... um, Yeah, there's, if I had time, I'd read the whole chapter because it's, it's interesting. But, but let's look, uh, look at verse 3 of chapter 21 in particular, just to see the kind of things that he had been doing. So Manasseh, he was 12 years old when he began to reign, right? And reigned for 55 years, long reign. In verse 3 of chapter 21 of 2 Kings, you see, for he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made <coughs> an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done and worshiped all the hosts of heaven. We see them referred to in Zephaniah, right? The hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem will I put my name. So again, we see that, that uh, Manasseh leads the people to idolatry is really what he does. In fact, he, they build uh, they, they begin to adopt the Assyrian gods. That's who the host of heaven are referring to here. And they begin to just worship as the Assyrians do. And so Manasseh led the people into uh, really just devious. He rebuilt the altars. He led the people to worship the Assyrian gods. Um, he even sacrificed his son as an offering. He began to use fortune telling and omens from, from uh, different people. Uh, he carved idols. He placed them in the temple of the Lord. I mean, he was just a he was a wicked dude, uh, really was not a faithful king in any, any way. Um, if you look at 2 Kings 21, verse 9, you see the judgment of the, the author of Kings. He says, but they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. In other words, the, the author of Kings says, he led Judah into such evil that was beyond what the, the pagan nations had been doing, right? So this is, again, just some incredible evil that he's leading the people to. His reign was described as one of the shedding of innocent blood, uh, perhaps referring to the persecution of the prophets, maybe perhaps child sacrifices, we're not sure. But either way, uh, it was a, 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 a terrible time. It's interesting, and we don't have time to go back and flesh all this out, but if you look at Chronicles and look at the account of Chronicles, we get a little bit of a different picture. So if you look at 2 Chronicles 33, and you can turn there if you'd like, but I'm going to try to reference to it uh, briefly. But in 2 Chronicles 33, we see that Chronicle highlights a, a repentance moment for King Manasseh, uh, something that Kings does not point out. Um, because at one point, Manasseh was captured, Chronicles tells us, Manasseh was captured by an Assyrian commander, and he was brought to Babylon. And this desperate situation of being brought to Babylon and captivated as the king led Manasseh to, the scripture says, to remember his father's faith and to pray to the Lord. And God responded to his repentance and moved to hear him, and he brought him back to Jerusalem. And the text says, thus Manasseh knew the Lord was God. And so Chronicles talks about how he did lead to some reform at the end of his life, mostly centered around the temple, not around the the other regions of Judah. But he left up the altars that were scattered around to Judah to false gods. And so most of the people weren't really changed by those reforms, uh, but continued to worship these false gods. And at his death, his son, Manasseh's son, Amon, would turn to the evil and idolatry that his father had done previously. So... um, 
So it's interesting to ask the question, why does Chronicles mention this moment of repentance in Manasseh's life and not, not Kings? Well, it, again, we can think through this, but I think part of it is the reason for the purpose of each of these books. Chronicles is trying to stress a key point all throughout its book. And it's from 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so even for the worst of kings, as we look at Manasseh's life, repentance is offered even to him. And the Lord responds with grace to those who humble themselves. And he delayed his judgment against Manasseh because of that that repentance that he exhibited. So even as terrible and as wicked as Manasseh's long reign was, God's mercy and grace was even to the worst of kings. That's good news for us. So as we think about Amon, Amon was Manasseh's son. He ruled for only two years, right? Short reign from 642 to 640. And he was assassinated by many people in his court, Um, and you can read about that in 2 Kings 21. He had a short reign, but he followed in the ways of his father. He was assassinated by his officials um, who most likely wanted to distance themselves away from the Assyrian Empire. So the Assyrian Empire had begun to decline over the decades, um, and so they were waning in power. So a lot of the, the people in Judah said, all right, now's our time to actually overthrow Assyria and not be a vessel of the state anymore. And so they wanted to exert their independence again. Uh, and so we see that Amon is, is executed. Um, and then all those people that executed him are, are executed. Uh, so we see that leads to Josiah. And Josiah, you might remember, was a young king. He became king at eight years old. He was the new king. And Josiah ruled for 31 years from 640 BC to 609 BC, and he led great reform. Um, And so we see that the Assyrian empire was waning and weakening in the Middle East by Josiah's day, which uh, gave them opportunity to kind of re-exert Israel's Judah's independence. Throwing off the political shackles of Assyria also meant religious reform was needed that Judah needed to repent of their syncretism. And we'll talk about what that word means in just a little bit. So as we read about, Josiah finds the book of the law in 621 BC, and he reads it and he's devastated by it, right? He's devastated. Why? Why have I not heard about this book? Why have I not read this? Why have we been neglecting it? And certainly he believes judgment will come. So this is the context upon which Zephaniah is written. It's the, it's the background for this book that is uh, so fascinating to us. And I just lost my spots. So let me get back to it. But Zephaniah uh, is within this context. It's during the days of Josiah. So it's important that we think about this in light of this book um, because it's this context that helps us understand what's going on. Now, if you've ever been in a, a business or a corporation where there's a lot of change really, really fast, it's not always received well. <laughs> Even though Josiah's reforms were set in stages, Josiah's undoing everything that a whole generation had known about their religious practice. He's tearing down the altars. He's clearing out the temple. He's rebuilding the temple. He's getting all the Assyrian stuff out of there. He's trying to lead the people back to, back to faith as in accordance with the law. And as any drastic change that tends to happen, there are people that aren't okay with that. And there are people that want to continue to worship idols. And we see it's within this framework that that even though Josiah is trying to lead reform, there's a lot of people that are kind of halfway going along with it. 
they're not really on board with it. They're like, all right, the king's making us do it. And we see that they're trying to have their Assyrian gods with the God of the Bible, Yahweh, and worship both. And, and we see that this prophecy comes down quite heavily upon them. So let's look a little bit at the text itself. So let's look at Zephaniah verse two through three, and we'll look at this, this quickly. It, the, the Lord just comes off with a very strong rebuke from the beginning. Look at, I will utterly, utterly sweep away everything. What, look at the text and help me. What, what is the Lord sweeping away in verse two and three? It gives us a whole list of things, doesn't he? It's repeated a couple of times. What, what's some things he says? Man and beast. Birds. Fish. Rubble with the wicked, right? So it's interesting that, that uh, with the wicked, that the Lord's pretty much starting over, it sounds like, right? I mean, he's, it's, it's interesting. He's almost working backwards from the creation order. <laughs> you know, you think the last few days was man and the beasts, the birds and the fish. And so it's almost like God is deconstructing the world, so to speak. He's sweeping it away. It's, it's this, uh, this, this, this word of judgment that is coming. And we see that he is going to cut off mankind. The emphasis on this passage is, of course, this kind of worldwide judgment that is coming, but it's directed towards human beings, towards mankind, towards the people. Notice that God says he, he's reversing this idea of creation. He's working backwards from the seven days, from man to beast to birds and fish. And so we see that this is not just Zephaniah's words. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. Notice it's repeated twice. At the end of verse two, declares the Lord. End of verse three, declares the Lord. So in case you didn't get the message, this is, this is God speaking to his people. This, this firm and intense message of judgment. It's repeated twice for emphasis. And so this is a strong word of judgment. Indeed, in many ways, it's kind of shocking and offensive. Right off the bat, the Lord's sweeping away everything. He's cutting off mankind. This is a worldwide judgment. And perhaps God's people thought that, you know, well, well, God, God's not going to destroy the whole world. He already did that with the flood, right? He's not going to do that again. So they thought, but no, God says, no, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And, and the Noahic covenant might have caused you to think that I'm not going to do this again, but, but I will, and I will sweep everything away. So the prophecy here has immediate fulfillment. It hearkens to, to the Babylonian exile that is coming for God's people, but it's also got an, an eschatological fulfillment to it as well, right? That it, in many ways, this, this sweeping away, we won't really see come to pass until the end of the age when the Lord will, will burn everything up and, and, and heaven and earth will collide in the new heavens and new earth. That day of judgment is coming. But this idea of God's judgment, particularly as we see it in verse two through three, this is a, a very polarizing idea for our culture today, isn't it? That God would judge in this way, that he would sweep away everything. So let me ask you and interact with me a little bit here with the time we have. Why, why do you think God, the idea of God's judgment, why is that such a polarizing idea today? Yeah, so a kind of a distorted view of God's love in a way that, that love and judgment can't go together. And if God's love, then he can't, can't be judging. Yeah, what else do you think? Why does this idea of God's judgment so kind of offensive to people? 
yeah, I don't deserve judgment. I'm a, I'm a good guy, right? I'm, yeah. Think way too highly of ourselves, don't we? We don't really see who we really are. Yeah. Why do you think Christians neglect this? I think that's the part. I mean, we can understand the world not liking this idea, so to speak. But you think as Christians, as we look at the God of the Bible, why do we tend to avoid passages like this one, passages of judgment? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, so we have a hard time with this idea of righteous judgment because we typically think of judgment as kind of petty or personal. Um, and so, yeah, that's not the way God, God judges. He judges in righteousness and in character. So, so why is this so important? What happens if we remove this characteristic from God, judgment and wrath, what, what sort of problems do we have if God isn't, isn't a God of judgment and wrath? Denies his justice. Well, justice becomes an illusion in a lot of ways, right? Or it's not justice at all. Um, denies his holiness, right? And so, I, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. So I think this idea of judgment is uh, so important, even, even as an apologetic today, right? We, I mean, we, we were talking, some of us at lunch today, about social justice issues are becoming such a hot topic button in the church. And I think a lot of those conversations are good, but, but if God isn't holy and wrathful in judgment, there is no justice. When you think about all those wicked things that happen all across the world, if God isn't a God of judgment and of wrath, then, then those people just get away with it. Death is almost too good for them, Right? But, but if there is a God who judges and a God who settles account, then uh, that changes things, doesn't it? Yeah, Jimmy? Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. So we kind of have a distorted perspective, kind of that Copernican revolution around where we think God revolves around us when it's really the other way around. So let's look at verse four through six, because it's interesting, the judgments announced, kind of, you know, very brash, very forthright in verse two through three, and we don't really know why, right? For this, all right, I'm, Lord, I'm sweeping everything away, he says, declares the Lord. Why? What, what, what are you doing? And we don't really see some of the reasons why until verse four four through six. So let's, let's look at this together. We see that he is stretching out his hand against Judah, that this judgment applies not just to all the peoples of the earth, but even, even God's people, even his covenant people. He is, he is stretching out his hand against Judah, the southern kingdom. Um, and why? And the reason we see is this idea called syncretism. Any of you guys ever heard that word before? It's kind of a... a a word we don't use very often, but it's important to understand. I'm going to make sure I spell it right, because that would be embarrassing. Uh, syncretism. So syncretism is the, this is the dictionary definition. It's the amalgamation or attempted amalgamation of different religions, cultures, or school of thoughts. In other words, it's, 
I like what this religion has to say on this. And I like what this religion says over here about this. And I like, I like this, this religion's teaching over here about this. And I want to make my own. <laughs> I'm going to have a hybrid of all these different religions and worldviews. It's, it's syncretism is what it's called. And we see that's exactly what's going on here during Josiah's reform. That, that Josiah is trying to lead the way to religious reform, returning them to worship of the true God. And we see that remnants of Baal worship is continuing. And we see that worship of the Assyrian deities, the hosts of heaven, as they're referred to, are continuing. The leftovers from Manasseh and from his sons, Amon's reign, that, all that idol worship is continuing. So Milcom's the national deity of the Ammonites. Baal is a, is a Canaanite god. We see all throughout the scriptures, uh, a constant temptation for Israel to, to worship. And so we see that they're worshiping idols and God. Look at, look at the priests in verse 4. He says, I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. So they're worshiping both gods, right? They're worshiping the God of the Bible, Yahweh, and they're worshiping all these false deities. That's, that's syncretism. And I think this is a constant danger even for us, that, that Josiah is leading these sweeping reforms, but many of them are simply just going through the motions. And so I think this danger of syncretism is just as much a danger for the church today as it was for Israel during its time period. Because it's a little more challenging to identify, but it's still there because the idols of our culture, we typically don't create statues of them, but they're there, aren't they? Lurking beneath the surface. And it's much more subtle. It's harder to recognize, but those idols in our culture are there. So help me, what are some idols in our culture that we have in American Western life? Money. Self. Trump. Trump. <laughs> oh, yeah. I would say politics, perhaps. Politics, power. Yep. Or just Trump. For some, it is just Trump. Um, what else? Dave, you're not allowed to comment, so. <laughs> success, perhaps, yeah, success. Anybody else? Stuff, yeah. Sports, I would say maybe uh, entertainment, right? Just, it's more than just sports, it's just the entertainment culture. Perfect. Cell phones, right? <laughs> Yeah, and you can read Tony Ranke to see really what's going on beneath the surface. But yeah, cell phones is often driven by a lot of these, right? Politics, uh, they all go together. So anything else? Pleasure? Yeah, pleasure is one. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, you can keep going. All right, so <laughs> yeah, you, you guys are doing it. You guys, you guys must struggle with some of these or something because you guys are just rolling them off. Um, so yeah, I think the temptation is because we live in America and because there's all these idols beneath the surface of our culture, it's easy for us to take Jesus and to begin to attach some of these to him, right? So let me just flesh some of these out for us. What are some ways we do syncretism? So we take Jesus and we add, which is always a bad thing to do to Jesus, right? You don't add anything to Jesus. But, but this is what syncretism is. It's taking some of Jesus and some of something else. So we take Jesus and we take materialism. What do you get? 
Well, you get the, the prosperity gospel, right? All right, let's say you take, take Jesus and you add, let's see, comfort. Well, what do you get there? Well, you get cultural Christianity, right? Jesus is kind of my therapist. He helps me with my problems, makes my life more comfortable. Okay, well, I'm trying to write fast because we're running out of time. Let me just say them. <laughs> um, how about Jesus plus the zeitgeist? Anybody know what that is? I was trying to find a single word to talk about this, but the, the, the mood of the times is what zeitgeist means. And so it's kind of the, the trends of what's happening today and the way people think about the world. So if you add Jesus plus the zeitgeist, you get liberalism, right? Isn't that what, oh, we got to change this about the Bible because that's, that's taboo today, right? We don't, we don't talk that way anymore. And so Jesus has to be updated. He has to be modernized. He has to get with the times. Well, that's just Christian liberalism, isn't it? How about Jesus plus hedonism, pursuit of pleasure. I think somebody said pleasure. I think that was Carol. Well, that's the heresy of antinomianism, isn't it? it? Oh, Jesus doesn't care about how I live my life. He doesn't care about holiness. You know, I'm saved by grace, so it doesn't matter that I live a holy life or not. I can pursue pleasure in this world and enjoy all the things of this world without repercussion. Well, that's the heresy of antinomianism. How about Jesus plus politics? Well, that's, that's a common one today, and it just equals kind of this lust, this idolatry of power. It's really what it comes down to. And we see that a lot. I and mean, not, to, not to get on too much of a, a soapbox, but I think that's a particularly tempting one for evangelical Christians, right? That moral majority movement, you think back to the 80s, there was some good from it, but a lot of it, Jesus, it just came all about having power and influence and say, and, and, uh, and that's how Trump got to the White House. That's how evangelicals put him there, right? Is we wanted control, we wanted power. Uh, at, no matter what cost. And so I think you've seen some of that. What about Jesus plus works? Well, that's, that's legalism, right? That's Phariseeism, that's moralism. Jesus plus self? Well, that's the heresy of individualism, that I'm all that matters in life. So you can see, again, just from some of those examples, it's easy to take a lot of these ideas, and you could probably come up with more than the ones I did, but when you start adding them to Jesus, you're gonna end up in very dangerous, dangerous positions. I would say unchristian positions, right? So syncretism is a big temptation. And the difficulty is we don't always realize it's happening to us because we're not in the word enough. We're not asking the spirit to probe our hearts. Often these idols just start to attach themselves to the Christian faith. And before we know it, we've led, we've gone into some very dangerous heresies that are really destroying the church in a lot of ways. So all that to say, I think we have to be on guard against secretism. It's so subtle, and we have to seek the Lord with intensity, purity, and focus. So I've got a lot more to say, <laughs> but I think I'll save that for next time. So um, as we think about this idea of judgment in Zephaniah, because most of the book is judgment, by the way. We don't really get grace and deliverance and restoration till the end of chapter 3. But I think it's important, just real quickly before we close, to think judgment as a prelude to salvation in the Bible. That tends to be a recurring pattern, a recurring theme, um, that restoration is coming, salvation is coming, but it comes through judgment. This is a, a guy named Michael Hamilton wrote a book called Salvation Through Judgment. And he said this about Zephaniah, tracing out this theme throughout scripture. He said, Zephaniah proclaims the great day of Yahweh, the day he will be glorified when he judges in order to save. 
After identifying himself in his times, Zephaniah announces that God will decreate what he has made because of Judah's idolatry. He then makes clear that this moment of recreation, a decreation is the day of, of Yahweh, a day when he will justly punish evildoers. But as this judgment comes, we also see that restoration comes and the promise and hope of restoration. And again, all of this points ultimately to the cross of Christ, that ultimately judgment upon the cross leads to the salvation of the church. And so we see this pattern all throughout the scriptures. But, but let me leave you with that warning tonight to think about, to meditate on this warning of syncretism. Um, be careful. These are the Lord Lorders who will find themselves cast aside out of the kingdom on that last day. They will find themselves to be the recipients of God's wrath in that day, in that day of the Lord. And how many professed Christians are actually not Christian, but some weird, demonic, syncretic amalgamation of some of these idols that we've seen? How many professed Christians have actually bought into one of these combinations and think Jesus plus an idol equals Christianity? It's not. And they need to hear that warning. Perhaps some of us need to hear that warning this morning from Zephaniah. Look at what the Lord says to people who do this. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. I think the, the warning here is pretty clear, right? That if Jesus is not your exclusive singular treasure, then you're guilty of this idol worship, the syncretic idol worship. And we have to be on guard against that. So let me close this in prayer and then we'll, we'll get to clean up. Father, we are grateful for your son. We're grateful, Lord, for getting to know the background of Zephaniah and, and dealing with some of these judgments that are coming right off uh, in the beginning of the letter uh, of this uh, prophetic work. And Father, we just pray that we would be on guard against this temptation to to combine Jesus with these idols of culture. Lord, it, it's so tempting. It's so easy to do because we swim and breathe and exist in Western culture. Lord, it's so easy to let syncretism begin to develop in our lives. But Father, we pray that we would be on guard against it. Lord, that we would repent of it. And Lord, that we would worship and serve Jesus as our exclusive singular treasure. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.